podcasting from New York City Times Square. This is ABS in Mind, where we dissect the latest buzz from the asset-backed markets. And I am your host, Diana Asatran, fintech and consumer debt reporter here at Deadwire. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining. I'm Diana, and this is episode 10 of ABS in Mind. You guys, can you believe we've done 10 of this now? No, seems like yesterday we started. Right. Um, Anywho, we have a great lineup for you today, starting with uh, Al Yoon, editor and RMBS reporter at Deathwire ABS. Hey, Al, what's on your mind? Well, we're going to be talking about uh, the uh, growing segment of the mortgage market today called uh, non-QM lending. And uh, as I said, it's, it's a growing percentage of, uh, of how Americans will you know, get their mortgage loans these days. Uh, um, it's uh, growing from a very uh, small part of uh, U.S. Resident, residential finance. But uh, nonetheless, it's very important, and a lot of people are jumping into it. That's why uh, we've got uh, Brent Houston of uh, Ultra Mortgage on the phone. Absolutely. Thank you. And we have Larissa Patton, who covers esoteric assets for us. Larissa, what's on your mind? I'm going to switch gears and talk a little bit about whole business ABS and what we can maybe expect to see this year. Sounds great. And in the same theme, I will be chatting with Nelson Chu, CEO of Cadence. It's a digital securitization platform, which has recently completed the first rated digital ABS. We'll talk a little bit about that later. But Al, let's start with you and the non-QM mortgages. Sure, great. Well, Brent, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Um, everybody, uh, Brent is the CEO of uh, Ultra Mortgage Capital and uh, also the co-founder of uh, wholesale lender Altloan. And uh, Brent, welcome. Thanks, Al. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Sure, sure. I thought we might start off if you could just, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about uh, Alter Mortgage Capital and uh, where you guys fit in in this whole non-QM space. Yeah, so Alter Mortgage Capital, we started uh, we, we started uh, in the wholesale business uh, over three years ago. My background historically has been in the hard money uh, space, uh, mm-hmm. doing bridge loans, fix and flip loans, and foreclosure bailouts, and just you know those problematic files with clients that couldn't obtain conventional financing. And my business partner, uh, Blake Shifley, uh, he was he was heavy into the Altay space uh, and the and the Jumbo Prime and Altay. And what we did with Ultra Mortgage or or Alt Loan is we actually took those two place those two spaces. We combined the two uh, with a fintech play uh, in which we have over four and a half five million lines of code built into a fully automated and robust pricing eligibility and submission engine where mortgage brokers, uh, without talking to anybody, can go in, price out the scenarios, put in the mortgage lates, put in the uh, NSFs, uh, doc type, whether it's full doc, bank statement, uh, and immediately get instantaneous results as to whether that loan fits eligibility or doesn't, pricing, and if they like the pricing, they can submit directly to us. Uh, so it's a very op-centric type of organization, uh, heavily technology-focused. Okay. And this fintech sure. angle, and this fintech angle, Brent, that really sort of sets you apart from the field. You think? 
Yeah, we believe that is our our uh, uh, competitiveness uh, over our competitive edge uh, over our uh, other wholesale lenders out there. Um, and you got to remember that you know non-QM loans are complicated, and the guidelines are hundreds and hundreds of pages. And to try to figure out where a loan fits within the parameters and try and determine pricing, it takes a lot of effort for these mortgage brokers. I suppose that's why. Uh, uh non-QM lending got off to uh, a slow start a few years ago, but uh, now it's getting some traction uh, from what I understand. And um, I'm wanting to just step back for a minute and, you know, talk about the big picture about what you guys are seeing, you know, you know, or hearing from your brokers as uh, as they originate loans. Well, you, know, you got to take a step back even further and just, you know, why was non-QM or, or QM qualified mortgages okay. and how it even came about? You know, the QM and non-QM sector dates back to the to the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform um, and Consumer Protection Act back in July 21st of 2010 in, in response to the financial crisis of 2008, where QM loans or qualified mortgages were, were, were truly meant to protect the borrower from prohibiting or limiting certain high-risk loan features. And it really provided us lenders legal protection from consumer lawsuits. Well, these rules were established back in 2014 um, and only only truly applied to, to consumer purpose loans. Even though the QM loans were, were providing uh, us lenders uh, you know, from consumer lawsuits, there was still a huge need out there for those borrowers that couldn't meet QM loans. And, and really, the, the, the three most common reasons why borrowers don't fit non-QM loans is because their DTI or debt-to-income ratios exceed 43%. Uh, in fact, 46%, uh, according to CoreLogic, uh, of the non-QM loans have or, or have a higher have a DTI higher than 43, or using the, the limited or alternative documentation process, right? Where if you're doing a one-year full, uh, full doc or one-year tax return, or if you're doing a VOE, or if you haven't used bank statements and. You know, again, according to CoreLogic, 44% of non-QM loans are falling under under the limited or, or alternative documentation processes. The other component are interest only, um, and mm-hmm. obviously, with non-QM rates are are a little higher uh, than your QM loans, and having an interest-only feature helps make those loans much more affordable. There's probably a, a great pipeline of, uh, of business ahead for, for people in the business. I'm just wondering if you could share, you know, any kind of anecdotes you have from, you know, to show that, uh, you know, things are picking up, uh, you know, versus last year or the year before. Uh, this is what I'm hearing from, yeah, you know, generally I'm- speaking, so I'm just wondering what you're hearing from the brokers. Depending on who you ask, you know, the non-QMs making up 30 to 35 billion or 40 to 50 billion, uh, but but really it's making up two and a half to three and a half percent of the overall mortgage market, and you know the, the overall mortgage market is a is a one and a half trillion plus economy. However. We are expecting much more growth, and and we're we're expecting non-QM to be growing either a four to ten x uh, by by 2021. Uh, so you're looking at an increase from a 
thirty billion to to maybe a hundred and twenty to to three hundred billion. Okay. Uh, okay. So how do how do we get there? Good. How do we get there? Is it just about uh, you know letting borrowers know that it's out there, or getting brokers on board, or is it uh, coming coming up with new products, uh, loosening guidelines? Dare I say? <laughs> Well, it's funny you should say about loosening guidelines, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, obviously, um, you know, there, there, there's a lot of demand. There's a lot of pent-up interest. You have a lot of institutional investors chasing after higher yields uh, because they're they're they're, you know, they're they're a little frightened of, of of the stock market and and sort of where it's going, and they want that that income coming in. But with more more institutions coming into the market, it's actually tightening up margins, tightening up yield spreads, and and it's actually bringing pricing down. Um, and so we're we're seeing a lot of a lot of competition where where now aggregators are increasing their LTVs to 90, 95% loan value of the purchase price. They're increasing their LTVs on interest-only products. They're increasing their LTVs uh, with with higher DTIs. And in fact, there's been some um, some discussion with the CFPB that is considering eliminating ATR uh, with those borrowers that actually that, that, that have a clean mortgage history. So we're not seeing a lot of default within the non-QM space. I mean, yes, we, we have a higher default than, than your traditional uh, qualified mortgage, but it's still relatively low. You're under 1.5%, 2% on the delinquency. And because of that, that attracts more institutions for coming into the picture, which further compresses margins. Okay, Brent, you were talking about there's some temptation or some 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 guys out there maybe doing things like you know raising LTV uh, caps in order to maybe win business. But uh, when I speak to people like that, they often say that, well, yeah, but you know we can go up to 95 LTV, but uh, you know the FICO's got to be up here and DTI's got to be down you know below 35 or something like that. So in other words, uh, there's not a lot of risk layering out there uh, yet, so to speak. You think that's correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously the, the, the higher FICO you have, the more unlikely it is for the borrower to actually default on that mortgage. So within our portfolio, our, our average FICO is, is, is over 697, 705 right around there. Um, although for us, we do go down into the sub fives, but that's going to be for a much lower LTV type of borrower. Um, our, our sweet spot and, and where we really see a lot of our volume pickup are the jumbo prime loans with, uh, with the higher FICOs and just those self-employed borrowers that just don't qualify for traditional financing because their tax returns don't support their income. But when you look at the bank statements, it does. The credit risk borrowers, you have to bring that LTV down in order to mitigate uh, unnecessary risk. Okay. And uh, lastly, uh, speaking of risk, I mean, I've been reading some Wall Street uh, investment bank reports and, uh, you know, they, they do mention uh, in, in general that uh, delinquencies are pretty low. I think you mentioned under 1.5% overall. But when they, uh, I think it was JP Morgan analysts that drilled down last week and, and found that non-QM 
loans in securitizations, uh, 2019 vintage securitizations uh, are sort of, you know, their delinquencies are ramping up faster than in uh, previous vintages, let's say 2017. And, uh, you know, they don't go as far as to say that the worst loans are being made today than yesterday, but I think it is implied in, in their report. Um, so, uh, you know, do you think that really means that, uh, well, what do you think that means? Is that uh, uh, lenders chasing business or is this uh, has something to do with the economy? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, with non-QM loans and with mortgages in general, right? You have to follow what's happening with the economy. Uh, people living beyond their means. But we've also had a change within guidelines uh, as well. I mean, you know, back in the, in, the, in the 08 financial crisis, we had what was called stated loans, right? And you didn't have to prove your income. You just stated on your 1003 what your income was. And if you were a gardener, you could be making 20000 a year and people wouldn't blink an eye. Well, you can't do that anymore. Um, however, when, with, when, when Nikron first came out and with bank statements, you had, you had a lot of investors accepting bar prepared P&L um, and we're starting to see a shift away from being able to use bar prepared P&L um, because that technically you know, was looking more like a stated loan uh, type, of, type of situation and, and institutional investors and aggregators are are requiring to have a CPA prepared PL or prepared by a third party uh, who's been doing the the uh, tax preparations for the last two years for the borrower. So we are seeing some tighter guidelines um, coming out that will help with the delinquency factor. Uh, but anytime you start dropping down in, in credit, uh, or FICOs for the borrowers and increasing LTVs, you're starting to ask for more problems. Okay. But still, so. as you said, you're starting to see some tight, some tighter guidelines. I mean, that's interesting because uh, uh, Deanna writes about uh, consumer uh, unsecured consumer loans uh, a lot, and uh, a lot of the companies that she's been speaking with have tightened their guidelines because, uh, um, well, DQs were rising in that space. And so, uh, you know, if you want to leave it on a positive note, I suppose that it's a good thing that the industry can kind of police itself in a way, right? Yeah, it, it does police itself because, you know, it, again, it's all about chasing after the yield and having good quality investments. And there, there's a fine line between, between being too loose but then have a portfolio that, that doesn't perform. So you you want to open the door, you want to extend credit uh, to those non-qualified mortgage borrowers, uh, but you also want to have a safe and secure portfolio for your investors. So like a lot of things, it's about striking the balance. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, yep. um, uh, Brent, I think that's all the time we have for our segment here, but uh, thank you very much and uh, look forward to speaking with you again on the podcast. Okay, thanks Al, thank okay. you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brent. Keeping up with the fintech theme over here. Um, Nelson, could we start off by a quick intro of what Cadence is and what asset classes um, you guys are in right now? Yeah, sure, absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Um, so Cadence is a private credit securitization technology platform. And so private credit is a fairly broad term. It kind of has become a bit of a catch-all. Uh, for us in particular, we look at things like consumer loans. We look at small business 
investment lending, uh, lots of different specialty finance lenders in this space. Uh, we're all looking to grow and scale. And so we like to think that we cover every life cycle stage of an originator's growth from these small guys uh, who are basically looking to do their first you know, commercial paper programs with us, our short-term note program, all the way up to the bigger guys, like the ones that you mentioned today, uh, the fat brands, whole business securitization that we're doing. Um, and so, you know, there's different types of securitizations that we cover in this instance. Uh, on the retail side, it's, you know, fairly more simple, conventional standard. And on the institutional side, it'll have all the things you come to expect, like trustees, backups, and ratings, and things like that. Um, I think transparency, more than above all else, is our ethos. And so we try and provide better reporting, better analytics, uh, all for um, the ability to actually make private credit a more transparent and trusted asset class um, in a way that hasn't been before. And how much volume have you done so far, approximately? Yeah, absolutely. So we've done uh, these like micro securitizations, and like I was mentioning, uh, these originators are uh, on our retail uh, credit investor platform have the ability to tap into what we like to call our short-term note program. These are one-month, three-month, six-month, nine-month investment opportunities uh, that our credit investors can have access to and invest in. And it's actually a very uh, flexible uh, cost of capital for um, these these originators that we work with, uh, and they really appreciate that. And so to date. Uh, we have done over $50 million worth of securitizations, and we've also done uh, over 50 securitizations at this, in this moment as well. Um, and that is definitely uh, on the upswing for 2020. Uh, but we're in the middle of um, the syndication period for um, a public company's whole business securitization, and that is uh, looking to be around a $40 million offering. And of course, the next question I was going to ask was about uh, the whole business deal that you guys recently did with uh, Fat Brands. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, as, as much as you can tell us uh, about how the deal was received initially with investors and uh, how was it different from a regular traditional whole, whole business transaction? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So we play the role of a lead structure and arranger on the offering. And so, you know, we structure the bonds, work with the company, the rating agencies, and we got all the transaction parties involved, right? And so we kind of spearheaded that process. Um, so it was the rating process was actually not too dissimilar from what you see today. Uh, you have a ratings agency's presentation, you see whether it's rateable or not. Uh, the ratings team does their own review and due diligence on the structure of the company, uh, the legal aspects of it, um, you know, get it through committee, and then at the end of the day, if they believe they can rate it, then they move forward. Uh, and so all that is sort of uh, part of the course uh, from what you see in a traditional whole business securitization that other people have done before. Uh, the real only difference and primary difference, which I believe is an important one, um, is that we did issue a reflective digital asset for this transaction. So we're, we believe that this will be um, the first uh, rated securitization to have a digital asset issuance associated with that. And so that's really laying the groundwork for uh, the future of transparency that we try to provide to all this. So not just uh, do we have a digital asset that reflects the cap table uh, of who owns what uh, within this transaction across all the tranches. We have two senior, two junior tranches. Uh, but on top of that, uh, we are actually going to be recording um, a tremendous amount of structured data uh, on these issuers. Um, and so that whether it's monthly reporting, quarterly reporting, it's all going to be recorded onto our ledger. Um, and it will ultimately, we believe, uh, bring additional transparency and ultimately change the pricing for the better uh, for everybody involved uh, because there's a level of trust within the data that we've been collecting um, to give every counterparty confidence in the deal that's being structured. For sure. And, you know, if for anyone that's curious to read the DBRS uh, rated uh, the securitization, and there is actually in the pre-sale, there is actually a portion that specifically addresses the token 
tokenization aspect um, of the deal, which I do think is a first for um, for an ABS deal um, overall. And so, as you mentioned, several benefits of having this um, tokenization aspect to the transaction. But would you say transparency is uh, number one benefit at this point? Yeah, so in the same way that we try and provide and be as transparent as possible for our retail uh, crowdfunding platform, uh, we try and bring that for the institutional securitizations as well. And so everything we're doing uh, with the digital asset, with the ledger, is designed to help get all the counterparties more comfortable with it. Um, and so, you know, the, like you mentioned, um, we in the pre-sale report, there was a piece about uh, the digital asset element to what we're bringing to the table. And we also had it in the investor presentation on the FinSight Deal Roadshow uh, uh, that the other investors were looking at and uh, look through to be able to do diligence on the actual offering. And so it's something that we believe and we hope will be um, sort of becoming the norm in the future. And we're doing our part to be able to make all that possible. Sure. And we reported that the deal the deal originally was expected to be around 30 million in size and then that uh, kind of the expectation upsized to around 40 million. So I'm guessing in terms of how, you know, what, what you saw from your initial conversations with investors during the roadshow, the, you know, the deal was basically received pretty well at this point, right? Yeah, I think um, we did a good, it was a good job of uh, the sizing, the upside based on sort of the uh, demand that we saw in the market for whole business securitizations as well as uh, strategically aligning with what the company needs. Um, at the end of the day, I think pricing and sizing and all of that is really around relative value. Um, and so we believe that the current price talk on the bonds reflects this. Uh, but it's going to be TBD whether a pricing upside comes out of this blockchain piece that we bring to the table. Um, I think uh, this will most certainly be the case and will be much more uh, prevalent and uh, over time. Uh, but as of right now, it's still, it's still TBD. It's tough to predict. Uh, but when they can get comfortable with the value of transparency being provided and the market sort of starts to understand it and knows how to price it in, uh, I do believe that there will be a change going forward for the better, for everybody involved. Did their rating meet your expectations? We were in line with expectations, I think, uh, based on the fact that they were a first-time issuer. Mm -hmm. uh, we believe the structure that we've uh, helped create is one that is pricing in the risk properly for everybody involved, and we are pleased that uh, the race agency is solved the same way. Right. So for our listeners that haven't seen it yet, uh, the senior classes received double B rating from DBRS, and the more junior classes got a B rating on the deal. And I guess um, just lastly, um, uh, Cadence specific, just what's on roadmap for you in 2020? Is there a specific asset class that you're excited about? And just uh, more broadly, what's your expectation on the adoption of uh, some of the blockchain technology in the ABS market? I know it's been a long way coming. We've been talking about this for years now, but it seems like we've made you know an actual step towards uh, progress and adoption. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have a very exciting 2020 shaking up for us. So as I mentioned in the beginning, our goal is to be there for originators at every single life cycle stage of their growth, right? And so uh, the expectation is that we're going to be able to get some originators who are on our retail investment platform today uh, to the next level, to an institutional securization. And we anticipate that we will have uh, two or more of those coming in uh, at or towards the end of the year, I would expect. Um, on top of that, there are other uh, whole business securitization opportunities that we could look at here. And so uh, there's a lot of exciting things that we're working on. And every single time we do a new offering like this, we're going to bring more and more elements of the uh, ledger and the digital asset into the fold. Uh, 
I think in terms of adoption and ABS markets, look, this is all the groundwork you need to build, right? So you can't uh, shock the system and completely transform from top to bottom. You need to provide tremendous value, um, usually in the form of pricing benefits for issuers. And, and that's going to come with investor confidence, which comes with greater transparency, which comes with better analytics. And so all those things are things that we're taking step by step now to be able to make it all possible. And so you guys have might have seen uh, DVO1 was a data agent on the recent Goldman deal. Um, and so there's definitely unique value adds that startups can come and play in each of these transactions. Um, I do believe Cadence does take it one step further and arranging these deals um, from the outset. And so all the tech that we can build um, to be a unique differentiator and uh, kind of make this pricing uh, more amenable to everybody involved uh, means that we are really the ones to usher in this new wave of uh, kind of transformation for ABS. Absolutely. Thank you, Nelson, so much. If you could hang on just for a few more minutes as our, our esoterics reporter, Larissa Patton, wants to talk about whole business. Sure, absolutely. Great. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the whole business sector because I think it's going to be an interesting one to watch this year in part because of what you and Nelson just touched on, new issuers. Uh, this year started with a $500 million deal from Jersey Mike's. It did okay. It did price on the wide end of guidance, but they were a first-time issuer. And last year, we saw a handful of first-time issuers, the Serve Pro deal, the CSAC deal, Primrose. I did talk a little bit last year about how the sector saw more deals coming from newer issuers and business models that were outside of quick service, the quick service restaurant model, and that's expected to continue this year. But what will also be interesting is to see how many of the more stalwart, stalwart tier one issuers come to market and how frequently. One interesting thing that was pointed out to me recently is that whole business deals are often brief eyes of previous deals. For example, the notes issued in the Sonic 2020-1 deal, which priced on January 15th, will be used to refinance some of the notes in their 2013 one deal. This was similar to Dunkin' Donuts 2019 one deal last year. 985 million of that deal is expected to be used to repay existing debt from their 2015 one deal. So this isn't something that issuers do every year. So if that need was fulfilled for a lot of issuers last year, will we see many of these types of deals this year? So it'll be interesting to see if issuance volume ends up being uh, supplemented by more of these first time smaller issuers. Spoiler alert, I have heard of at least one, which will be in an upcoming report I'm working on, so keep an eye out for that. But another good example is the uh, $40 million fat burger deal that was recently issued um, and that you and Nelson just discussed. Nelson, I'm glad you're here today because I wanted to get your opinion on this topic and what the landscape looks like in relation to new business securitization and new issuers. Sure, absolutely. I think there is a tremendous opportunity for um, whole business securitization to be a very prominent part of the conversation uh, going into the future, especially in 2020. Uh, I think there is an opportunity for uh, new issuers like FAT to be able to take advantage of that type of structure where um, everyone who's involved in the transaction and interested in that type of uh, securitized cash flows coming out are um, comfortable with a way that is protective of everybody who's involved. And so um, it's it's one that is, I believe, uh, a very advantageous and opportunistic structure uh, where every investor, every counterparty uh, can feel confident in the way it's being done so that their interests are protected. Interesting. And you had mentioned during your discussion with Deanna that you anticipated maybe a couple more whole business deals uh, coming towards the end of the year. What is it about whole business that you're targeting or is it that the sector is just more ready to adopt your platform? 
think the whole business doesn't work for everybody, obviously. Uh, but I think for things like franchises, for things like quick service restaurants, uh, what we've done essentially is create a structure that is very scalable, both on the legal and the technology front. They actually definitely go hand in hand. And so our ability to actually make it much more repeatable, uh, especially with this interest in the space right now, uh, means that we have an opportunity in front of us to take advantage of uh, what everyone is looking for and structure price in a way that is uh, beneficial for everybody. And so um, we are looking at a couple more whole business securitizations uh, this year. Uh, but the ones that I mentioned to Deanna are actually the ones on our platform today, our retail platform, uh, that are growing up and graduating from that system. And so uh, those are going to be more conventional rated esoteric APS, not necessarily whole business. Interesting. And I obviously understand that you can't name names, but are these um, anticipated to come from first-time issuers, inaugural issuance? Uh, and yes, they would be because they've been only on our retail platform today. Okay, great. Thank you. And I'm guessing the last thing I guess on this topic I wanted to mention, I'm guessing the size of the transactions also makes it makes it easier, right, for newer, newer issuers to come in. It's easier to do like a 30, 40 million type of securitization rather than come out of the gate with like a 100, 200 million deal, which is what typical whole business securitizations are, right, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right. I think uh, we're the champion of the middle market whole business securitization here. Uh, that's what we believe. There is an opportunity set in front of us to be able to do that. Uh, and so um, I, I think we are definitely by far the smallest, but it is something that allows companies like Fabrance to be able to grow. They're using it as almost like an acquisition vehicle. Uh, and so there will be multiple this year, expect, that's expectation coming from them uh, for some strategically interesting opportunities that they have out there. Uh, and so, you know, the ability for us to do it and size it in a way that works for them and also has um, interest from investors uh, who are looking for potentially small allocations, but at the same time, uh, shorter duration that they have more of a buy and hold mentality since the uh, legal final, while they may be in the six-year range, um, there are call options built in to the one-year range. Um, that makes it an interesting proposition for uh, even large buyers of whole business securitizations to dabble on this side of the market that they normally would not. Um, I have a question. What are the main risks in these securitizations? Because I know I didn't realize until Deanna said it that uh, that uh, you know the one you're talking about is uh, non-investment grade rated. Um, and uh, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, I, I understand that you know some of the demand might be coming because of the surge for yield. And I'm just wondering uh, if investors are really doing their proper homework on this sector. Oh, they definitely are. I mean, the ratings agencies have been in this space for a while, and so they do know the space well, and they're familiar with the structures. Um, in this instance, we believe that a lot of the um, the risk or the perceived risk came from the fact that SAP Rank has not been a public company for very long. And so uh, there is that sort of first-time issuer, uh, relatively new public company, even though the underlying franchises have been around for a very long time. Uh, that was just sort of the, uh, the rationale for why it came in the way it did. Uh, but the truth is that there are definitely um, asset managers who are willing to look past that because they understand why it came in that way. And so at the end of the day, if the yield is there, if the structure is down, uh, then they can you know look past things like that. Awesome. Well, thank you um, so much. I think this was a very interesting discussion um, for all the subjects that we talked about today. Thank you, uh, Nelson. Thank you, Brandon, Larissa, Alan, our producer, Anthony, for making this episode happen. And I'll see you all next time. Thank you. Thanks, Deanna. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. 
If you like our show and want to know more, subscribe to Deadwire and follow us on social media. Please like, share, and comment, and join us for our next episode soon.